I hereby order a margarita on this desk at 5 p.m. I just wanted to see if that could actually work. The lead starts right now. President Trump tosses a grenade into the market, sending an order fit for a communist leader and says China's president might actually be a safer choice than the head of the Fed. Breaking this afternoon, news from the Supreme Court. Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg treated for pancreatic cancer, the latest on the 86-year-old icon's recovery and what it could mean for the court. Plus, a scam almost as old as the Internet itself, still costing many vulnerable elderly women millions. A massive FBI bust and why you should just delete any message asking you to help smuggle diamonds. This is CNN Breaking News. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Erica Hill in for Jake. And we begin with breaking news in the money lead. You just heard the closing bell there on Wall Street. And you can see Wall Street nosediving. President Trump dramatically escalating his fight with China and his own Federal Reserve chairman. The Dow plunging more than 600 points ahead of the president's critical trip to the G7 summit this weekend. CNN's Allison Kosick is at the New York Stock Exchange. And Allison, China, of course, slapping tariffs on $75 billion in U.S. products today. Is that what spooked Wall Street to this point? You know what, Erica, I think that's part of it, but I think the bigger part impacting the market was President Trump's tweet tirade, his tweet that he would be responding to China's tariffs this afternoon. Well, that response never came, so it created this wild card for investors that breeds all of this uncertainty, the very thing that investors hate. It's why they sold so big. Uh, the Dow falling about 619 points. Not helping his Twitter attack against Fed Chief Jay Powell about the Fed, as usual, doing nothing, he said. Powell is at the annual Jackson Hole, Wyoming meeting of central bankers and economists. Uh, it's where they talk about global economies and monetary policy. It's not a place where the Fed chief would make rate decisions, especially since rate decisions usually happen at scheduled meetings, unless there's an emergency. And Erica, last time I checked, there's no emergency here, except for all the red on the screen. Now, Powell didn't, didn't give an indication of any action that the Fed will make at its Fed September meeting, but he did acknowledge, Erica, that the economy has grown more turbulent in the past three weeks. Erica? Allison Kosick with the latest for us from the New York Stock Exchange. Uh, today, Federal Reserve Chairman Jerome Powell, as Allison uh, just noted, acknowledged there are, quote, significant risks to the economy, including the tense trade war with Beijing. And that statement prompting President Trump to question whether Powell, his hand-picked Fed chief, is actually worse for the United States than China's communist leader. Let that sink in for a moment. CNN's Boris Sanchez picking up our coverage now from the White House. As President Donald Trump prepares to depart for the G7 in France, sources say he's questioning why he should attend a conference he sees as unproductive. The last two gatherings of the world's top leaders ended acrimoniously, with Trump feeling like he isn't given enough time to tout his achievements, like the economy, according to sources. The economy has been really fantastic. Trump also triggered today by new Chinese tariffs, huddling with his economic advisors in the White House, attempting to to unveil immediate retaliation and firing off a string of tweets writing, quote, our country has lost stupidly trillions of dollars with China over many years. I won't let that happen. We don't need China and frankly would be far better off without them. Trump also adding a demand he doesn't have the power to enforce, tweeting, 
Our great American companies are hereby ordered to immediately start looking for an alternative to China, including bringing your companies home and making your products in the USA. Trump advisor Peter Navarro telling CNN the tariffs are emboldening Trump. When China reacts like this, what they simply do is strengthen the resolve of this president, and they signal once again to the American public that China wants to buckle our knees so that they can keep having their way with us. Trump also assailing Jerome Powell after the Fed chairman acknowledged troubling signs in the economy, but gave no signal the Fed would follow Trump's call to cut interest rates next month. Speaking at an economic symposium, Powell saying, quote, we're carefully watching developments as we assess their implications for the U.S. outlook and the path of monetary policy. In response, the president tweeting in part, as usual, the Fed did nothing. We have a very strong dollar and a very weak Fed. My only question is, who is our bigger enemy, Jay Powell or Chairman Xi? Now, we're still awaiting an announcement from President Trump on exactly how he plans to respond to those retaliatory tariffs from China. In the meantime, we know he's been watching the markets because a couple of hours ago he tweeted out a joke about former Marine and presidential candidate Seth Moulton dropping out of the race, joking that Moulton dropping out is likely what triggered that downturn in the stock market today. There you have the tweet. Erica, the president joking about markets falling via Twitter, even though it was his own tweets that likely played a large part in that downturn we saw. Erica. Boris Sanchez with the latest for us at the White House. Boris, thank you. Also with us, Washington Post opinion columnist Catherine Rampell, who covers the economy, and Douglas Holtz-Aiken, the former director of the Congressional Budget Office. Uh, good to have both of you with us. So, Douglas, you just wrote in Time an opinion piece talking about how you're not too concerned about a recession, but saying that in your estimation, the president really has a mixed report card when it comes to the economy, noting specifically his trade policies are what you see as a major <laughs> obstacle to growth. Uh, and there's also the issue of this chaos. Allison touched on it in terms of how that's affecting uh, investors, right. uh, you know, just a little bit south of us at the exchange. There's no clear message. There's no clear, clear plan. What is the impact? Uh, I think this is an unambiguously negative part of what we've seen out of the Trump administration. And Today's a, a really good example of it. Um, there was some substance today. Uh, China announced uh, that they were going to uh, introduce retaliatory tariffs. It followed the plan they announced at the beginning, which is if the U.S. moved, they would respond with commensurate actions. These are exactly the same kinds of actions on the same dates, September 1st, December 15th. So, you know, that really wasn't a surprise. People shouldn't have seen that as a dramatic change in the state of the unfortunate affairs between the U.S. and, and China. But the president then immediately weighs in and, A, escalates a fight with the, the Federal Reserve in a way that's just unbecoming of a president of the United States, and, B, threatens to retaliate further against China in an unknown fashion, and you see the results. So it just sows uncertainty. It's been very damaging to, to global trade, global out, outlook, and, and, and to the United States. So it's ultimately not even serving his interest in hope for re-election. It, it's, it's been something that's been puzzling and baffling from the beginning. So it's not serving the president's interest in your in your estimation. Catherine, as you look at this, it's back and forth between President Trump and China. Is anyone winning here? It, it certainly doesn't seem like that's the case, um, or at least neither the United States nor China, I will say, is winning here. I, I think that there are a lot of ways to make both right. parties worse off at this point. Um, it's hard to see a path to making either side better off, uh, given that you have farmers in the United States suffering. We have four studies now from... 
um, you know, highly credentialed economists saying that Americans are paying the cost of the tariffs. You have manufacturers and retailers and importers uh, worried about the cost that they're paying, as well as the uncertainty that they face about future costs and where they should be sourcing their materials from. You have China suffering, of course, uh, which has the risk of contagion effects. So there, there are no winners here, uh, except to the extent that maybe country, other low-cost countries like Vietnam uh, could potentially benefit from companies trying to move their sourcing out of China and into into other locations, which they've been doing with mixed success. They're not coming back, by and large, to the United States. They're going to other places. Well, we'll see what ultimately happens there. I appreciate both joining us with your insight this afternoon. Thank you. Uh, as we look at all of this, too, there is, of course, a political angle that can't be ignored uh, as we're looking at what's happening. The president uh, making a number of declarations, as we've talked about on Twitter today, including this. Our great American companies are hereby ordered to immediately start looking for an alternative to China, including bringing your companies home and making your products in the USA. Uh, Scott Jennings, I don't know about you. I'm not sure what that order is. Is the president the president trying to order companies to bend to his will? Is this a royal declaration? You know, in some ways, it sounds a lot like socialism. Well, I, I read it the, the other way. I read it that it was a message to the Chinese, which is I'm going to use my presidential influence to try to get American companies not to do business with you in an effort to give himself more leverage in this deal. Look, I think the president's got a two-pronged issue here. One, he wanted to show the American people that a president of the United States is willing to stand up to China and to follow through on some threats. And number two, the second prong, which he's not accomplished yet, but he needs to, and that is, I'm a great deal maker, and so after I stand up to these guys, I'm going to put a deal on the table that everybody wins under. So he's got one accomplished. We're now in the murky middle here where everybody's a little nervous. Now if he can accomplish step two, I would just say, though, every day we get closer to the election is a day that the Chinese regime probably thinks they can wait us out. So just, if I'm the president, but, uh, I'm looking Scott, for a deal me, right now. Let me clarify. So you're comfortable uh, with as a Republican with the president ordering companies to do something the way he wants them to do it. That's OK. No, no, I'm not comfortable with a president ordering around uh, private companies. But I'm telling you, I read it backwards. I read it the other way, which was I thought he was trying to signal to the Chinese that he's willing to talk to American companies about abandoning China. I don't I didn't read it as though he was nationalizing American industry, which is what a lot of Democrats would like to do. But I don't I don't think a Republican president's going to do that. Oh, Hereby ordered. Those are those are I mean, those are certain words. I, I go ahead, Karen. Can you imagine, though? I mean, this I mean, Trump, the irony here is, you know, Trump used Chinese steel in a lot of his buildings. Can you imagine if a president would have when he was a businessman told him we you have to stop doing business with China? Look, here's the here a couple dynamics here, though, I think we need to be paying attention to. Number one, there doesn't seem to be a plan. And I think that's part of what is making the business community so anxious, right? As, as Doug Holtz-Eakin just said, it was predictable that China was going to come back at us with something. So to act like this is this huge surprise, I think, is adding to the uncertainty of, well, what's your end game here? Because the truth is, unfortunately, Scott, as we know, he's not a good businessman. This is a man who has filed for bankruptcy multiple times. This is a man who is used to being able to use all kinds of trickery which you just can't use when you're the president. And the second thing I think is really important is that we've seen this pattern, this pattern of attacking Jerome Powell. We've seen this again and again and again. He makes it a loyalty test, right? That's not Powell's job. His job is to do what he thinks is right for the economy. And he knows he only has so many tools at his disposal 
to do that. But this whole, this berating him and this making him the enemy is setting him up to be the scapegoat so that if and when things go bad, it's not Trump's fault, it's somebody else's fault. Let's also point out, too, I mean, we can't ignore the fact um, that this is highly unusual, and perhaps that's putting it mildly, to not only attack uh, the Fed chair, but to put out a tweet that says, and once again, I'm quoting, my only question is, who is our bigger enemy, Jay Powell or Chairman Xi? I mean, Aisha, when you look at that, yeah, I, we I know this president wants one. to be. The go biggest, for it. <laughs> the biggest enemy is, is Donald Trump. He's an enemy to sanity. He's an enemy to stability. He's an enemy to the American presidency. He's an, Amer- an enemy of decency and of morality. And frankly, he's an enemy of conservative and Republican principles. Because if you are a Republican, you are a free trader. You're not for trade wars. You're not for tariffs. You're not for running a $1 trillion deficit. You're not for antagonizing allies and coddling foes. We see a president who's using the bully pulpit of the presidency to attack other Americans, to break international relations, to cause an instability and chaos. And I think what he's trying to do is distract us from the fact that he inspired a white supremacist to go hunt down Latinos and that he capitulated to the NRA. Yes. And that, you know, he, I mean, he, his economy is going so badly. He is trying to distract us, but his words have consequences. His tweets have consequences. He is being irresponsible, impulsive, ignorant, and short-sighted. And that has enormous consequences. And more importantly, I, he is trying to be an autocrat. And I don't want us to, like, lose sight of that. That is exactly mm-hmm. what he's doing. By trying to order corporations to do anything, he is saying, look, I am your master and you do what I tell you to do. And the other thing is is that Donald Trump runs around acting like this is all to the benefit of the little guy, of his supporters who are, you know, not, who are non-college educated white folks, frankly. And the truth is, is who paid the price today when the Dow crashed? Who pays the price every time he tweets out something that tanks the economy? It's all of us with our 401ks that are paying the price for his recklessness. So I think that we need to not skate over the fact that in his language, time and time again, as well as in his behavior, he thinks he's a dictator. He actually thinks he's on par uh, with with uh, North Korea and China and is trying to treat America in that way. Um, and we're all paying the price for it. I do really quickly uh, also want to touch on the fact that, of course, the president is leaving tonight for the G7, making his way to France. Uh, you know, we have new reporting. We know that he was not happy the last two times he's attended the G7. He is not excited about going, uh, didn't really like the focus of the last two. And so from our reporting, he was specifically irked that he wasn't given enough time to tout his own accomplishments at the at the past two meetings. So um, his aides lobbied to add a session on the economy so he could brag about, Karen, how strong the U.S. economy is to his fellow world leaders. Can I tell you, that's just so disgusting to me. I worked for President Clinton, and actually I, was, I worked for the president when, he, when President Clinton actually advocated to add Russia to the G7 to make it the G8 because they were on the path to democratic reforms. So I have to believe that part of what is going to not be fun for this president uh, sitting at the G7 is they don't want to add Russia to the G8, right? They don't want to go back to the G8 because there are a lot of concerns about Russia. There's a lot of concerns about the about our economy and, and the stabilization, frankly, of the world economy. I mean, you have to believe that if you are Emmanuel Macron, you are sitting there trying to read, the, figure out what is this president doing and how do I, what do I need to do to keep my economy strong? 
We'll be watching for all of that. Uh, as we move on to looking at 2020, we're told it's the lowest point in the campaign. What is so worrying for certain insiders for one top 2020 presidential contender? Plus, we do have breaking news at this hour. The Supreme Court releasing a rare statement. Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg's fourth bout with cancer. That's next. Breaking news in the national lead. We've learned Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg just completed treatment for pancreatic cancer. This is the 86-year-old's fourth bout with cancer. I want to bring in CNN's Arianda Vogue. So news of the treatment actually came from the court itself. What more do we know about how she's doing and what the treatment was? Right, Erica. We know that the treatment began August 5th uh, for a tumor on her pancreas. It's called a localized malignant tumor. We know that she canceled her annual vacation in San Francisco or in uh, Santa Fe. But next Monday, she's going to go ahead and appear at a speaking event uh, in uh, Buffalo. And get this, we know that during her treatment, she appeared at an event in uh, New York City, and she met actress Kate McKinnon, who, of course, plays her uh, on Saturday Night Live. So that happened during the treatment. And last night, uh, this justice, 86 years old, was on Broadway uh, watching a performance of Moulin Rouge. Uh, so she is one tough customer uh, struggling with this uh, new diagnosis of cancer, Erica. A tough customer with this latest diagnosis. This, though, is her fourth um, bout with cancer. It's remarkable. In 1999, uh, she had surgery for colon cancer. Uh, in 2009, an early stage of pancreatic cancer. In 2014, she had a heart condition. And in 2018, just last year, she uh, had uh, surgery to remove two cancerous nodules from her lungs. Keep in mind, that was the only time given everything I've just said, where she missed sitting on uh, the bench to hear oral arguments. Earlier in the summer, she gave a talk just after uh, the death of Justice John Paul Stevens. And she said that she had talked to him and she had said, you know, my goal is to stay on the bench as long as you did in your 90s. And she said that he responded, stay longer. And she said later in that thing that she said, I've always said, I'll stay on this job as long as I can do it full steam, Erica. So that seems to be her goal. There you go. Ariane DeVogue, appreciate it as always. Thank you. Also with us this hour, Supreme Court biographer Joan Biskupic. Joan, always good to have you with us. Uh, you also so well-sourced on the court. You, of course, uh, wrote a book on the Chief Justice. Do people actually talk about her health at the Supreme it's, Court? Is that is that okay to do? <laughs> it's a sensitive subject, as you can imagine, Erica. And they want to give Justice Ginsburg her privacy but of course they're aware of her situation at 86, even with just three uh, cancer scares. So you see it in a couple different ways. Uh, one, you know, one way I'll mention is sort of as a gesture and the other is more substantive. We see Justice Clarence Thomas helping her down from the bench after oral arguments all the time. He's always there ready to land a hand. More substantively, though, we see Justice Ginsburg working with her younger liberal colleagues to sort of shore up the side on the left 
What she does is she's been assigning opinions that she normally would have given to Justice Kagan or uh, normally kept for herself. She's giving to the other justices, laying groundwork for what would happen in the future. So you can see them mindful of it, but also being Mm -hmm. respectful. So the court returns from break in October. Uh, at this point, we haven't we don't have an indication that there's any reason she would need to take any time off. But if that were the case, how do they proceed? How do they handle the day to day? OK, I can tell you exactly how it happens, because we've seen that already. Chief Justice John Roberts will announce from the bench if she's gone, that Justice Ginsburg will follow the cases through listening to the audio of the oral arguments and reading transcripts and uh, reading the briefs, which is exactly what she did for several weeks earlier this year when she was being treated for the lung cancer. So we expect that that's what he would say and that she would follow through. But at this point, she's obviously following Uh, her normal schedule and getting ready to uh, meet with the justices at the end of September and then be there on the bench for the traditional first Monday in October. Yeah, certainly doesn't seem to be slowing her down, at least not from the Instagram photos there. Uh, Joan Biskupic, (laughs) appreciate it as always. (laughs) Thanks, Erica. As another presidential candidate drops out, there is a new warning sign for frontrunner Joe Biden and his electability. That's next. In our 2020 lead, and then there were 21. Congressman Seth Moulton ending his presidential campaign just a short time ago, narrowing down the historically large Democratic field as campaign funds begin to run low for some. So now, of course, the question on everyone's mind, who's next? Ah, get out your magic eight balls. Uh, <laughs> Moulton, though, talking with, talking with reporters after talking about the state of the race, and this really stood out to me. Take a listen. You know, I think... Unfortunately, it's largely become a three-way race for president, um, and uh, that's left out a lot of important voices. Uh, you know, people like the only combat veteran in the race, the only governor from a state that Trump uh, won, are not going to be part of the next debate. Aisha, is he right? Well, look, uh, if you're looking at ground game, which is what I'm looking at, then, yeah, it's kind of a kind of got three people right now who are really, really killing it. And I would actually add four because Kamala Harris is doing well in terms of putting her ground operation together, too. But if you look at Iowa, I think the real wild card to watch in Iowa is Elizabeth Warren. She has an army of people on the ground there. She has quite the infrastructure for her campaign. And if you remember, that's what Barack Obama did, even when the polls showed that Barack Obama was way down and it was all about Hillary Clinton at the time. He was quietly putting together an operation knocking doors that ultimately won for him. And I think that that's what is going to play out. I think that Seth is right. He's seeing that. He can't afford to be on the ground down there. Um, but I do see that as, a, as an Elizabeth Warren is winning the pack in Iowa right now, despite what the poll numbers might say about Joe Biden. Well, if we look at the poll numbers, five, five of these 21 candidates are actually up polling above 5 percent, according to our own Harry Enten here at CNN. Um, you know, this is five out of 21, as we mentioned. So, Who in the other 75 percent of this field, Karen, are you looking at right now (laughs) with a, you know, a pretty good chance of, I don't know, moving up to 6 percent? You know, look, I'm one who believes that it is still very, very early. And I would caution us. Iowa will be important. But part of the reason it was important to President Obama was because it proved that he could win among white voters, which was monumental at that moment in, in in the race. But the way, and I was at the DNC when we changed the calendar, the way the calendar is structured, if you are a Pete Buttigieg and you can, and you have the money to get yourself through February, let's say, when voting starts, 
you don't actually have to win Iowa to be able to then pick up some steam. And so I think we have to really think about Iowa, New Hampshire, South Carolina, and Nevada, and then you've got Super Tuesday. So I still think there's a lot of volatility in this race because I think anybody could have a breakout moment in the debate in September or October. Anybody could falter. Um, and I think, you know, Biden obviously has stayed very much in the in the lead, in part because I think people just want calm to some degree. Right. There, it's, it's unclear if people really want the kind of transformational change that Elizabeth Warren is talking about. We'll see. But I certainly think that some of the others in that sort of middle tier still have room to grow. And I think we can't count them out just yet. So here's one of the other things. And we and, you know, we talked about this a little bit earlier this week when we heard from Jill Biden that the most important thing wasn't necessarily whether you agreed with the candidate on certain issues or like their plans, but the fact that her husband, the former vice president, had the best chance at being elected. The problem with that is there's not necessarily the enthusiasm behind Joe Biden, uh, as there may be. You might look at the numbers, but the enthusiasm isn't there. In fact, The New York Times writing about this. And in speaking with the director of Monmouth Polls, he told The Times, I did not meet one Biden voter who was in any way, shape or form excited about voting for Biden. They feel they have to vote for Joe Biden as the centrist candidate to keep somebody from the left who they feel is unelectable from getting the nomination. Anna, does that spell trouble at some point for Joe Biden? Uh, listen, I'm not a Democrat, so I don't vote in this primary, <laughs> but I can tell you that if Joe Biden were running against Donald Trump, I'd be a hell of a lot excited to vote for Joe Biden. So I think they've got to stop making this argument about electability with Joe Biden because we all know it by this point. And they've got to, you know, work on the enthusiasm gap and work on on getting people to really, you know, get their love juices flowing. <laughs> but everything in life is relative. Everything in life is relative. So, you know, we, you've got this entire narrative about Joe Biden and the gaffes. Well, compare it to Donald Trump's gaffes and pathological lies and immoral attitudes and the things that he does on a daily basis and the mistakes and lies he gives out on a daily basis. So I think the enthusiasm will come. It's very, very early. I, I, you know, I've been thinking a lot about John McCain. His one-year anniversary of death is coming up. John McCain's campaign imploded a year before right. the election in the summer of 2007. And he kept at it, practically with no money, practically with no staff, and wound up being the nominee. It is way too early to count anybody you know, that I would say is in the top tier out mm -hmm. right now. Now, Scott? if you are, Bill de Blasio, honey, go home and fix, the, and fix New York. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Scott, Here's we'll give you last word. That, Erica, yeah, I, I, I think, think there's a couple of structural, uh, there's a couple of structural issues here that, that have to be recognized. Number one, the fragmentation of the field is what's keeping Biden afloat. Obviously, you know, he's been True. pulling in, you know, in the low 30s for basically most of the race. And as long as Warren and Sanders are splitting that segment of the Democratic Party, I suspect Biden is going to continue to lead. If they stay in for a long time, it enhances Joe Biden's ability to win if, if neither of them blinks in that game of socialist chicken. Mm. The other issue is the Democrats change the rules so that you have to achieve 15 percent of the vote in these contests in order to get any delegates. So if you're one of these campaigns that's been floating around from one to five percent for the entirety of the race and you've never even sniffed double digits, let alone 15 percent, and then that happens to you in Iowa and it happens to you in New Hampshire, at some point you have to face reality that the rules as they are set up in this particular contest just aren't uh, capable of allowing me to, to move forward. So fragmentation helps Biden. If the field decides they don't want Biden and they consolidate, 
that will advantage someone else. But I just think structurally, the 15% threshold makes it real hard for some we, of these lower tier guys to make it. All right, we're going to have to leave this segment there. Uh, but we'll, we'll keep talking about it. Don't worry. Lots, lots more to come before we actually get to that point. We talked about Senator Bernie Sanders. He's set to take the stage soon at the DNC summer meeting. Well, the 2020 hopeful, as you know, has a new approach now when it comes to the media. Work around them. Seen as Ryan Nobles takes a look at the lengths Sanders is going to to speak directly to voters. For Bernie Sanders, it is a familiar refrain. There is a bubble here in which, uh, you know, members of Congress, the media, the establishment looks at reality in a certain way. Sanders' critique of the media was a regular part of his insurgent 2016 campaign against Hillary Clinton. This time around, he's ramped up his complaints by suggesting the corporate owner of The Washington Post, Jeff Bezos, may be influencing The Post's coverage of his campaign. We have pointed out over and over again that Amazon made $10 billion in profit last year. You know how much they paid in taxes? Oh, God, it's zero. Any wonder why The Washington Post is not one of my great supporters. It's an attack that's drawn comparisons to President Trump's approach to the paper. Which is really just a paper for the benefit of Amazon. The Washington Post is fake news. But unlike the president, after a sharp rebuke from the Post's editor, Sanders tempered his critique. I think Jeff Bezos is on the phone telling the editor of The Washington Post what to do. Absolutely not. And while President Trump regularly blasts the press in harsh terms, they are truly the enemy of the people. Sanders says that's a line he will not cross. And to me, that is a disgusting remark which undermines American democracy. Still, Sanders remains frustrated by the coverage he is receiving. So he and his team are attempting a workaround. We are very active on social media and we try to speak directly to the American people. The campaign using some of its massive war chest to invest heavily in direct-to-supporter media platforms, launching a podcast. So great to have you here today. And producing slick videos for their social channels. They're not going to be paying premiums, deductibles, co-payments. They've also started an email newsletter in the style of a traditional media report. We are back here at Bernie headquarters. And even host their own web-based post-game shows after primary debates. And the Sanders campaign calls this perceived slight by the media, the Sanders write-off, spelling right, W-R-I-T-E. It shows that even while they are actively working around the traditional media, they understand the role it plays in the primary process, a role, Erica, that they cannot completely avoid. No, they cannot. Ryan, thank you. A new threat from Russia after the U.S. tests a previously banned missile. What Putin has now ordered his military to do. That's next. In the world lead, Russian President Vladimir Putin threatening the U.S. as President Trump sends mixed messages saying he wants Russia back in the G7 as his Pentagon tests a Tomahawk missile last Sunday. As CNN's Barbara Starr reports, today Putin is ordering a, quote, symmetrical response. New orders to the Russian military and a threat to the United States from Vladimir Putin. I instruct the ministries and relevant departments to analyze the level of threat posed by the actions of the United States to our country and take comprehensive measures to prepare a symmetrical response. Putin was responding to the U.S. recently firing a ground-launched non-nuclear missile 
It's raising questions about what a symmetrical response looks like. What I suspect he is talking about is trying to match pace for pace uh, or one for one the kinds of missile capabilities that the United States is now going to, to look at developing. The Trump administration wants to develop that missile now that the Russians have deployed their missiles near Europe. Defense Secretary Mark Esper taking the hardest line yet on developing defenses against the Russian systems. Right now, Russia has possibly nuclear-tipped INF-range cruise missiles uh, facing toward Europe, and that's not a good thing. Even though the Pentagon says it will not deploy new nuclear missiles, it's become a full-blown arms race with worry Putin is in the lead. According to some experts, uh, he's at least a year, maybe even as much as two years ahead of, of our ability to actually deploy in the field uh, a similar like capability. U.S. military intelligence believes Putin's ultimate goal? What they're developing is uh, a capability to deny the ability of the United States to meet its alliance commitment specifically in Europe. The Russian nuclear-powered Skyfall missile test, which resulted in a deadly explosion and fallout shrouded in secrecy by Moscow, is just one of Putin's weapons programs designed to hold the U.S. at bay. European worries about a resurgent Russia still with control over Crimea and attacking eastern Ukraine may doom President Trump's efforts to get Russia back into the so-called Group of Seven economic fold. I don't think that there's going to be any serious discussion at the G7 of letting Russia back in. And if all of this wasn't enough, the U.S. has fresh worries that the Russians are developing a new nuclear testing method that may be very difficult to detect. Erica? All right, Barbara Starr with the latest for us from the Pentagon. Thank you. I want to bring in Steve Hall, the CIA's chief of Russia uh, operations at one point. Uh, so former, exactly, Steve. As we, as we look at this, this symmetrical response which we've heard about from Vladimir Putin, is that simply another missile test or do you believe it could be something more? You know, Erica, I, I doubt that it's actually something more. If you look at the, the, what, what Vladimir Putin said, he said two things. The first was actually pretty mild. He simply said we need to you know, do an in-depth study of what the Americans have done, and I've tasked my military to do that and then see what the response is going to be. It actually could have been much, much more strong. But interestingly, one of the things that he also said in a different part of his comments a few days ago was uh, we don't want to get into an economically damaging arms race with the United States. Putin understands uh, that he would be losing in that because the American economy and the economy of all of our NATO allies can support that type of research and development much more than Russia can. Their economy is, you know, smaller than the state of Texas, frankly. So I, I'm, I, you need to be concerned whenever the Russians are talking about nuclear weapons, and we do need to keep a close eye on it. But I'm actually more concerned about hybrid warfare and their attacking of our democracy on a, on a, on a, on a non-traditional level as opposed to actually a military level. Uh, and that's something we should continue to talk about, I will point out. Uh, these mixed messages that we're seeing from the president, on the one hand, uh, talking more and more about wanting Russia back in to come back to the G7, bring it back to the G8, and then at the same time pulling out of this treaty, right, uh, just a number of days, of course, before testing this missile that would have been uh, banned under the deal. How do you read those messages? What do you do with them? Well, you know, the the G7 thing is, is ridiculous. As I indicated previously, you know, Russia 
probably should not be in the G7 simply because it's not economically that meaningful in the broader scheme of things. It's certainly not anywhere near the capacity economically of any of the other G7 members. And don't forget the reason that they got tossed out to begin with. It's because they were very, very aggressive and attacked neighboring countries and annexed Crimea and other, you know, just unacceptable behavior on the international stage. So there's no way that they should be let back in on, in the G7, unless, of course, they withdraw from Crimea in Ukraine. That would be great. That'll, that'll never happen. The INF okay. Treaty, they were cheating on that. And so it was important for us to, to, to monitor that and continue with our own development. Steve Hall, always appreciate your insight. Thank you. Sure. She thought she was dating a U.S. Army captain she'd met online. Turns out it was all a scam, and she wasn't alone. How a network of 80 people targeted women worldwide and stole millions. In our world lead, women who thought they were talking with U.S. servicemen overseas were actually being conned out of thousands of dollars. And as CNN's Nick Watt reports, the Department of Justice is now calling this one of the largest scams of its kind. Early morning, the feds came knocking. FBI agents arrested 11 federal defendants in Los Angeles and another three around the country. 80 people charged and all the charges include fraud, money laundering and identity theft. We believe this is one of the largest cases of its kind in U.S. history. Roughly $10 million stolen, all online. This case involved 32 confirmed victims. Victims were located in the United States, as well as in Japan, the U.K., Lebanon, Ukraine, China, Mexico, Germany, Indonesia, UAE, and Trinidad and Tobago. They were the elderly, vulnerable, lonely, or lovelorn on dating sites and social media, as well as businesses that rely on wire transfers. At the center of the indictment are operatives here in Los Angeles who facilitated the fraud schemes by opening U.S. bank accounts where victims were directed to deposit their money. Among the many cases detailed in the sprawling 252-count indictment and complaint, a woman who thought she met a U.S. Army captain stationed in Syria online. In reality, a scammer who asked for financial help to get a bag of diamonds out of the war-torn country. That woman... The widow, recent widow, who did not have a lot of money. Lost more than $200,000. On Facebook, an 81-year-old Hawaiian woman thought she met an oil rig worker in Belgium. In reality, a scammer who bilked her for 750 grand. And there's an Illinois family who thought they were wiring $135,000 to an escrow company. In fact, the money went straight into a scammer's account in L.A. These mass arrests are the culmination of a huge, more than two-year investigation, but still, a word of warning. We are not going to arrest our way out of this problem. And so we continue to educate potential victims. Two key pieces of advice. If you are wiring money, pick up the phone, call the company, check the details before you wire any money to anyone. And if you're on social media or a dating site, do not trust anybody who asks for money before you've met face-to-face. -face. Erica? Oof, Nick Watt, appreciate it. Thank you. As record fires destroy the Amazon, one country wants to ban a major product that may be to blame. In our world lead, new satellite images you see here comparing the devastation inflicted by the wildfires in the Amazon rainforest 
to just one year ago. Finland today is calling for the EU to urgently review its imports of Brazilian beef as the majority of fires have been set to clear land for cattle. Brazil's president now saying he's considering sending the army in to tackle those fires. Be sure to tune in to State of the Union this Sunday morning. The guests, White House economic advisor Larry Kudlow, Democratic presidential candidate Bernie Sanders, and Cindy McCain. That's at 9 a.m. and noon Eastern right here on CNN. Our coverage continues right now. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.